You're listening to the Big Cast C-Suite Edition, your source for leadership insights and inspiration with John Jan Clays. Hi, everyone. Welcome to this edition of C-Suite Interviews. John Jan Clays here. Hey, we're set for a great episode where we hope to enlighten and inspire leaders from across the business spectrum. And I think today's episode is right on target to deliver against that aim. Today, we interview Jim Klein. He's the president and CEO of the Trex Company. Jim joined Trex as its leader during a crucial time in its history, 2008. Trex was nearing bankruptcy when Jim joined the company, and he helped to turn around its culture. And by doing so, bring the company back from near bankruptcy to a thriving enterprise. 2008, Trex stock was trading at $4. Today, it's trading north of 60 under Jim's leadership, net income grew from $48 million to $72 million in a single year. If you're not familiar with Trex, it's a world leader in alternatives to wood products for building backyard decks and furniture. Trex has won awards for having 95% of its products made from recycled materials, saving over 200,000 tons of waste going into landfills while requiring no trees to be cut down. What I found inspiring about the Trex transformation was Jim's approach to getting the entire workforce involved in its transformation. It's a great story of transformational leadership. This interview is chocked full of nuggets such as how incentives can either drive or derail outcomes, how solutions are derived through team effort and constructive conflict, and how leaders need to give emerging leaders room to fail and to learn from those mistakes. There's many more nuggets in this interview. If you're ready, Here's my interview with transformational leader, Jim Klein. Hey, Jim. Welcome to the show. How are you? Doing great. Thanks for having me. Yeah, glad that you're here. Hey, a great place to start for our listeners is to get a little bit of overview of your personal and professional experience, maybe starting all the way back to, I think you come from Ohio, don't you? Is that where you grew up? I do. Uh, I, I came from a little town called Vanward, Ohio. It's in the northwestern part of the state. Uh, it's a little town, a farming community of about 10,000 people. Hmm, that's fantastic. So tell me a little bit about growing up in Ohio, and then how do you make your way to, to Bowling Green to go through school and, and head into uh, into business? Well, uh, as I mentioned, it's a very small town, 10,000 people. And uh, I uh, basically lived about three blocks from my grade school. Uh, every school I went to, you walked to. Uh, I think the furthest I had to walk was maybe – three quarters of a mile to school, no cafeterias at that time. You walk back and forth to the house to have lunch at home, and uh, uh, it it was a great place to grow up. Hmm. So how did you decide to go to Bowling Green as you kind of grew up and were heading off to college? How was that a selection? Well, it was interesting. Uh, I hadn't really thought too much about college, and my father came to me one day and said, son, uh, well, what what are you going to do after you graduate from high school? And I said, well, I thought maybe I'd go to college. And he said, have you applied to any place? I said, uh, no. <laughs> and he said, well, you, you better hurry up because uh, if you don't, there's there's two other directions you can go. If you don't go to college, you'll be drafted or you will uh, end up working at a factory. How does that sound to you? I said, I think I'll apply to college. So I applied to two colleges, Miami of Ohio and Bowling Green, and got accepted to Bowling Green. It was about... Uh, an hour and a half away, and decided that uh, that that would be a great direction for me. Hey, great. And I, I understand in reading some other materials about you that you kind of worked your way through college, if I understand right. 
Tell us about uh, that. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> I, I certainly did. Uh, I had some great jobs, uh, and, and uh, you know, they aren't great from the standpoint you necessarily make a lot of money, but they're great from an experience standpoint. Uh, I, I mowed grass uh, the first couple of summers uh, for the public parks in Van Wert, and then the last two summers I uh, I uh, worked in a factory, and it was a great experience. Uh, while I was going to college, uh, I had a great job. Uh, cleaning the uh, restrooms in the dormitories on the weekends. And uh, it uh, gave me a little bit of humility having to do that. Well, you know what? You and I share some common ground. Uh, to pay my way for things that I wanted growing up, I had a little business called Moving Mowers. So I mowed lawn too. And at my high school, to have extra money, uh, I filled all the Coke machines you know, around the campus. And so I understand it's a, it's a great way to start that work ethic uh, to, you know, moving ahead. So, um, hey, tell us about your professional experience. Where was your first job? Where did you kind of cut your chops? And and how did you make your way all the way over to Trex? Uh, sure. My, my first job out of school, I interviewed with a company in Cleveland, Ohio called Eaton Corporation. Uh, Eaton is a multinational company, and they had a job opportunity in a little town in North Carolina called Roxboro. Uh, it gave me exposure to all facets of the accounting uh, as well as working with other departments such as uh, engineering and sales. Uh, from there, I accepted a job in Cleveland, Ohio, uh, working for a company by the name of True Temper. And at that time, True Temper was a manufacturer of lawn and garden implements, as well as striking tools. It had uh, a division that made golf shafts and uh, uh, tennis racket frames and uh, another small operation. I was primarily focused in the uh, lawn and garden and uh, striking tool implements. Um, I worked for them about 18 years, and it was kind of interesting. I uh, started in Cleveland. They moved the headquarters to Harrisburg, uh, uh, Pennsylvania. And over the course of that 18 years, we had six ownership changes. Wow. So it was actually like working for a new company every few years. And... Uh, I had a great experience with the changes, um, had experience working with companies like Black & Decker and uh, a company out of uh, uh, Connecticut called Emhart Corporation, uh, just to name a couple, and uh, learned an awful lot from the people I met there. So you are no stranger to change. Uh, no, cha change came pretty easily. After those six ownership changes, you either learn to adapt and, and change or you left. Okay, And uh, so I adapted and changed throughout most of my career. Very good. So um, if our listeners are uh, hearing you and hearing about being able to adapt to change is key, what are some of your strategies that you used that were helpful as change came in? How did you embrace it? How did you land on your feet through those kinds of transitions? Well, the first thing I did is I, I didn't get paralyzed with the idea that I was going to have a new boss and a new company owned us. I focused on what needed to be done to have a clean, proper transition for the company that was going to be taking over. Uh, my view was, if I do a good job, focus on what's important to them, everything else will work out just fine. And uh, it did. Okay. Very good. That's good advice. Hey, tell us how you made the journey to Trex. How did that come about? Well, after I left uh, uh, True Tamper, uh, I started with a company by the name of Harsco Corporation, 
And I was a CFO for a division of Harsco called uh, the Taylor Wharton Gas Equipment Company. And they made pressurized vessels and uh, valve, uh, valves for controlling gases. Uh, a gentleman I worked with there, uh, he and I basically conducted a turnaround at that division. And uh, after he left, I was named uh, president of that division. And a short period of time later, the chairman came to me and said, Jim, you know, we're thinking about selling the company. Uh, when you have it ready, you let me know and we're going to sell it. Well, within about a year and a half, I, I told him that we needed to sell it. And we basically transitioned that company through the end of 2017 and sold it off. At that point, I was unemployed. Okay. So I was actually uh, doing a consulting gig for three months with the buyer and had decided I was going to retire at that point. I got a call from my old boss. He said, hey, we've got a turnaround situation here. How would you like to do one more? Okay. And uh, to make a long story short, I said, that sounds great. Let's, uh, let's get together and do it. And that's how I came to, uh, to Trex. So this is 2008? Uh, that's correct. I started talking to him in January of 2008, shortly after he started his new position as president and CEO of uh, Trex. Yeah. So a lot to learn from that. Um, our listeners um, are all business people and have the experience of coming into uh, a situation. Can you walk us through, Jim, Kind of what's your intention? What do you do when you come in to kind of size up what the situation is and start to think about your course of action? How did you move through that? Share with us. Sure. Well, I was fortunate because before I made the decision to join the company, I was permitted to talk to virtually anyone in the company I wanted to. And so I talked to a broad group of people throughout the organization, and they all had uh, pretty common uh, uh, themes. Uh, they, they all wanted to identify every problem they could possibly think of. And if if uh, if I stepped back and looked at the issues they had, I basically was seeing dollar signs because I could see ways to address many of these items very, very quickly. In some cases, the people had already identified the things that needed to be done, but they weren't getting the support from the organization to make the changes in the business. Hmm. So it really gave me a leg up and gave me the ability to help guide the direction of the company uh, before I even started. Uh, from those interviews, I conveyed a lot of that information to Ron so he could hit the ground running from uh, the, the first uh, part of January. You know, as I'm listening to you recount that story, how was it that you were able to listen and, and real quickly find a path back to uh, sustainability because the answers were there and other leaders couldn't. Do you have some insight to like, why, why did that occur? Well, I, I think one of the problems that they had as an organization was they had too many chiefs and not enough Indians. There were 11 vice presidents for a company with 300 million in sales and two manufacturing sites. So everybody was being pulled in a different direction. And part of the reason they were being pulled in a different direction was their compensation system. They were compensating people with personal objectives, and they were taking out millions of dollars by achieving their own personal objectives. But they didn't always mesh together in a coherent strategic plan. So one guy would be pulling one direction, and somebody else is pulling the other, and it threw the organization in turmoil. Okay. 
So coming in from the outside, everybody knew change was coming. And so they readily opened up. I didn't have to do much polling to uh, get people to explain the issues and the problems they saw. Yeah. Jim, do you think they understood how close they were to bankruptcy? And that was also kind of a compelling factor. I think a few of the people in the finance department understood that. But for the most part, I don't think they really understood how bad it was. And in fact, uh, when I first started there, I told my wife after being there uh, about a month, uh, that uh, you just continue with your job in Harrisburg. I'll get back to you on uh, when we're going to sell the house and you move down here because uh, there were some pretty severe issues in front of us. We had some pretty key decisions that had to be made. Yeah. How did you share that information with the rank and file so that they could understand what you were really up against? Well, uh, our, our approach is a pretty straightforward approach. We, we didn't use the the bankruptcy word. But we we basically conveyed to everybody that the company was not doing well and we needed to make dramatic changes. And we were relying on all of them to help make those changes. And to give you one example, uh, with the hourly workforce, uh, we made uh, a decision very early on that uh, their compensation system was not working. They had a bonus program based on EPS, paid once a year, hadn't paid them in years. And most of them didn't even know what EPS was. So we went to them and said, look, we need your help to turn this company around. And here in this envelope is a check for $500 for each and every one of you. Play ball with us. Help us make changes that will move this company in the right direction, and you'll see a lot more of these. We immediately got a lot of bright, smiling faces, as well as subsequently getting people who would help us to identify the changes that need to be made. They weren't sitting on the sidelines. They were actively engaged. Yeah. So you talked about your leadership team being a little bit at odds based on compensation. So eventually you must have got everybody on the same page. Compensation must have been some part of that. What else did you do to get your leadership team, those 11 leaders, on board or did you? I mean, how did that work out? Well, before I started, Ron and I discussed the changes that needed to take place in the organization. And we came to the conclusion 11 were too many. So the ranks were reduced to about five vice presidents. We took a number of directors out of the organization also and basically thinned most of the ranks. There were only a couple of departments. We didn't affect sales department. We didn't affect research and development. And we didn't affect the finance department. Because we needed to straighten each one of those out before anything was uh, changed in those departments. Okay. How about out on the manufacturing floor? What kind of changes did you implement and see to kind of make a difference there? Well, one of the key areas that, that we saw was not working for the company is the company had taken an approach to try and check the product at the back of the line to inspect quality into the product. Our view is that's the wrong place to do it. You need to you need to make a quality product from the beginning of the line. So you need to have a consistent, controlled manufacturing process. So what we ended up doing is we basically locked down the controls so that not everyone in the production line could adjust things like the temperature of the line, the speed of the line, the pressure at the extruder. All of those things were locked down to prohibit people from 
for whatever reason, going in and making an adjustment. And so it was controlled by a select group of people. And our objective here was to have a consistent process so that once we identified we were not getting a good product, we could identify exactly what adjustment was necessary, and then we would run the line in that configuration. And uh, in very quick order, we found that most of the time when they were trying to make adjustments, the problem would have resolved itself without any adjustment whatsoever. So I'm hearing run rates are better, uh, incentives are improved, clarity, everybody's pulling in one direction. What about markets? How? Because you've had some, some fantastic growth. How did you think about markets and how did you get after that part of the equation? Yeah, well, the interesting part when we came on board and, and started talking to everyone from investors to bankers to, to our customers, we found that we basically burned a lot of bridges with every one of them. So we had to rebuild those bridges. Um, one of the telling features is when, when Ron went to talk to one of his uh, um, uh, uh, professional lumberyards, and the guy just ripped them apart, hmm. told them all the terrible things the company had did to him, and after he stopped to take a breath, Ron said, wow, that's, you know, that's really horrible, and you know, I can't believe you went through all that, but answer a question for me. Why do you keep buying from Trex? And he said, because my customers make me. Okay. So the consumers were still buying the product, forcing that purchase from the professional lumberyard. And without that, we would have seen a much larger exodus and reduction in market share than what we saw. Okay. So thinking also about markets, so is Trex um, product, is that just available in the United States or are you also do international sales? No, we actually are doing international sales too. We, we started several years ago uh, trying to hit a number of international locations. I think we are now at 45 countries. Wow. But it is concentrated in Europe. Europe is the second largest market compared to the United States. Uh, and as we got into it, we had uh, international advisors telling us how to go to market each of the different countries. We saw a nice growth percentage, but critical mass was really not developing uh, the way we would have liked to have seen it. So in 2015, we made a decision to change the way we're going to market for one country in Europe. And rather than take the advice of the experts from Europe, we decided to implement our own program that we use in the United States. And that's uh, heavy branding and advertising on TV, uh, training of people to properly install tracks, and develop a network of, of professional lumberyards to sell the products through who actually stock the product. And that was very unusual. In, in Europe, they don't normally have as much being stocked at those professional lumber yards. We had a great distributor. They, after they heard our plan, agreed to endorse it. And uh, in 2016, we had a phenomenal result in increased sales. Uh, we've expanded that program for 17 and are seeing similar results. So that business model is what we will be taking across the rest of Europe over the next several years. Wow, that's really encouraging. So the people under your leadership have really learned a lot, I mean, from um, almost approaching bankruptcy now to a thriving organization, from being a, 
mostly sold in the United States now to an international market that is growing. Um, when you think about great leadership, what do you think about, Jim? Well, uh, from, from what I've seen and the way I believe it works best is a good leader has to be an even better listener. Hmm. Uh, what we found uh, in the turnaround of Trex is that a lot of the people in the organization had great ideas. Nobody was listening to them, and they weren't listening to each other. So you had factions uh, throughout the company that were not participating together. So getting them to work together as a team, listening to each other, and as a leader, listening to what your people are telling you is extremely important. Yeah. Hey, more specific, is this town hall meeting format? Is this idea cards? Is this how did how did you get the listening and the cross uh, department um, you know collaboration happening? What were your mechanisms? Well, one of the things we did was to team these people up in groups, work groups. So we we would uh, have say for example we had a manufacturing issue. We would bring people from accounting, from sales, from marketing as well as manufacturing, bring them all together and say, look, we've got a problem here. We all know we've got a problem. This group will be responsible for coming back with a recommendation on how we're going to address it. So basically what we did, we forced them into groups where they needed to work together. Now, it didn't always work great because you'd have people more forceful than others and they would be pushing their agendas. But over time, what we've been able to do is get people to work in a balanced approach where they listen to each other and they're more interactive with each other. And so some of the concern from one group to another started to dissipate somewhat. It's never going to be a perfect world because everybody will have certain agendas, but the company is working much closer together than it ever did uh, in the past. Yeah. You know, in my role, Jim, I, I, sometimes I know I can't resolve some of that differences between front office and back office, right? They have different missions. But they do need to coordinate in one. So I always just think about it's a tension that needs to be managed and managed in a real kind of sustainable way that both of us need to thrive. How's that going to happen? It's not a black and white answer, this or that. You know, it's just really kind of coming together to manage attention in a way that works. Well, you're, abs you're absolutely right. And uh, there, there have been many times when uh, uh, the voices got a little bit louder than I'd like. I, <laughs> I remember passing uh, sure. uh, one office one day and uh, – uh, I opened the door and said, uh, look, uh, y'all need a referee or do you need to take a break? Uh, <laughs> I'll be a referee or you can take a break, but you're disturbing everybody else in the office. So, you know, you're talk, probably, you're probably thinking all the while. Listen to each other. Yeah. You're probably thinking all the while. I'd rather have the passion than apathy, right? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Yeah. Exactly. Hey, changing gears a little bit. How do you sharpen your saw as a leader? How do you, you know, keep your tool set pretty good? What do you do? Well, one of the things I like to do is is uh, I like to uh, read mystery novels. And to me, it's kind of like geometry in a way. It's solving a problem. So what I try and do as I'm reading a mystery novel is I try and think about where is it going and how am I going to figure out who did what to who and how this thing is going to unwind. And I think it helps you understand what you actually see in real life also, because uh, you can start seeing interactions with people and you can see the body language that's occurring. And before it becomes a major issue, you can help them unwind that issue that is developing between uh, uh, colleagues and help them put that behind them. 
You don't do it overtly by saying, okay, you guys just get together. It's not going to work. But but you find ways to bring them closer together, maybe a project where they both have skin in the game and they both have a, a focused interest in. Very good. Is there a leader that had a big impact on you, either a historical figure or somebody that you actually worked with that you'd like to, to talk a little bit about? Uh, yeah, actually, uh, my experience working for Ron Kaplan is, has been quite interesting. When I first started working with Ron, I, I had the interview. I came home and told my wife, uh, boy, this guy would be a son of a bitch to work for, but <laughs> I'd learned an awful lot from him. Yeah. And both were true. Ron, Ron in his early days was really difficult. He was very charged and focused. And, uh, we kind of complement each other in that way. Ron can go from DEFCON 1 to DEFCON 5 and a half a breath. With me, you got to put a mirror underneath my nose to see if I'm breathing sometimes. <laughs> so we kind of balance things out, and it's worked great for us over the years. Uh, but Ron has uh, helped me to develop uh, uh, my skill set in a way that I probably wouldn't have without uh, having worked with him. That's great. How fortunate for you to meet somebody who's your compliment, right? Kind of feels like a yin yang thing going on here, you know? Yeah, that's right. That's yeah. right. Absolutely. Yeah. yeah, I've had that that great pleasure too of meeting somebody who compliments me and I'm an extrovert and I talk out loud. That's how I solve things. And to have somebody who's more reflective and thoughtful as my partner is 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 fantastic. I've I've grown tremendously under that. So I can appreciate that that dynamic duo uh, type of thing. So, you know, our jobs require an awful lot of energy. That's the way I like to think about it. And uh, so what do you do to recharge? How do you get your energy back up again to come back to to the workplace? Well, I've, I've been a boater for over 30 years. And uh, with, with boats, you're, you're not running the boat most of the time. What you're doing is tinkering with, with it most of the time. So uh, I've never had any schooling in mechanics, but uh, what I've done is I've learned to do some pretty interesting repairs on the boat with regard to diesel engines and so forth. And uh, it's using the hands. You kind of you have to be focused on what you're doing. So you have a lot of time to dwell on the problems that you've got at work. Because if you don't pay attention on how you took it apart, you aren't going to get it back together correctly. Yeah, it's nice to be uh, totally uh, absorbed into something that's not about work. It's a great escape. And um, I, I totally understand that. As you know, my passion is horses and so uh, when I'm with them, I'm, I'm not thinking about, you know, finance, and it's, uh, it's a great uh, way to re-energize and, and charge. Um, hey, Jim, in closing, is there anything that, that you would want to tell our listeners? And kind of keeping in mind, a lot of our folks work in financial services. Some work for non-for-profits, credit unions. Um, so we run the whole, uh, the whole spectrum uh, in different kinds of business and different kind of leadership positions. And, any closing thoughts you would have about listeners? Because your story is so compelling, what you were able to do at Trex, bringing it back from almost bankruptcy to a thriving organization. You know, What closing thoughts do you have for our listeners? Well, I think one of the things that's important is, uh, uh, is listening to other people. And yes, you may have the right answer. You may be able to complete the other person's sentence. But what you got to do is step back, let them convey their thoughts, Listen to them in earnest because uh, that's how they're going to develop and learn. And I felt my responsibility has always been to develop that next level of management and give them the opportunity to grow. They're going to make mistakes. As long as you don't let them get in too far 
and do something that's going to harm them or others, let them make the mistakes and learn from them. Uh, they're inexpensive mistakes. It's a, it's a cheap lesson. They'll remember it for a long time. Um, when you have to step in, of course, you, you'll need to do that. But listening to the employees, listening to your team, um, I've been fortunate. My team is, is basically able to run this company without my involvement whatsoever. And my goal is when I decide it's time to retire, one of those hopefully will be able to be promoted to the job. And my goal is to make sure everyone who wants an opportunity will have the development opportunities they need to be able to get to that position. Well, that's a, that's a great summary. And you can hear all the drivers there and what must have made the Trex company story so amazing to turn around. It's a compelling story. And uh, thank you for being here today to, to share it with us. And uh, to all of our listeners out there, um, we extend our, our thank you, Jim, for being here today. And um, to all of our listeners, bye for now. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Big Cast C-Suite with John Janclays. To learn more or connect with John and the CEO Corner, please visit theceocorner.com. And we always welcome you to join in on our conversation. You can connect with the Big Cast Network directly by tweeting us at BigFintech, emailing us at info at big-fintech.com, or visiting our website at bigfintechmedia.com. 